Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam Hello, welcome to Paleo Jam. I am here in Townsville on Wulkarukaba country <laughs> with a grand group of wonderful people here at the Museum of Tropical Queensland. Is that what I say? Is that what it is? That's right. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I'm on a roll. My name is Michael Mills. I am the host. Um, thank you to National Science Week and the museum for making this possible. Before there were dinosaurs, Queensland was home to a fascinating array of reptiles, amphibians, and the ancestors of mammals. And then 252 million years ago, just about everything on Earth died. We might want to talk about that. With me for this episode, Dr. Espen Knudsen, Senior Curator of Paleontology at the Museum of Tropical Queensland at James Cook University. Thank you. And Ashton Turner, PhD candidate at James Cook University. Hey, how you going? Hey, how you going? I'm good. <laughs> so, the day just about everything died. You want to tell us a little bit about it, gentlemen? Well, it was uh, really sad uh, and horrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yet, the audience find it funny. It was a long day, wasn't it? Yes, it was a very long, dragged out period of time. So this isn't like when people think of the end Cretaceous extinction, where in geological terms it happened in an instant. Well, it did. Like, it was an actual instant, yes, wasn't it? Was, it? For, some, for some, some it was an actual instant, and for others it dragged out a little bit, but not but, anywhere like in the, oh, sorry, in the end Permian extinction, where things went on for possibly as much as 80 to 100,000 years. And, and was it 96%? So yeah, you'll hear different numbers, uh, somewhere between 90 and 95% roughly of all life on Earth went extinct. So that's, that's, that's a, a lot. lot. Yeah, that's, that's more than nine and out of 10. That, that's a lot. Mm. Okay, so what I always find interesting though, and this is where we, we go, oh, life finds a way, because um, it did eventually earth recovered and I reckon this is why this is my favorite um, extinction <laughs> can you have it a favorite extinction I don't know <laughs> I love it because while everything was just about wiped out after a few million years life has gone yeah actually life does find a way I don't think I think one of the lessons from the Permian is that I don't think we're powerful enough as a species to wipe life out on Earth. We, we will damage it. We will cause it to be not what it was. But I, I wonder if we might do that. But let, let's, let, let's, go, let's go back before that terrible day or 80,000 years. Um, what would it have been like walking around outback Queensland or what's now outback Queensland and and gentlemen both give, give mm. us both a, a sense of if we were walking around what would we be seeing well the earth had recently come out of a long ice age a global ice age in the middle early and middle Permian around 200 and uh, up to about 260 million years ago so after this the earth warmed up it got really hot and humid globally speaking 
and we had a lot of swamps which created what now is the coal that we're digging out here in Queensland. So there would have been a lot of rivers, there were also uh, warm oceans around and a lot of vegetation, quite green uh, and highly productive ecosystems in that way. And Ashton, so you, your, your, your PhD, you're, you're working on what kind of organisms? Uh, probably just mainly the amphibians. Probably. You should, be a, you should know uh, what you're probably working on. So, so amphibians. Yeah, okay, mostly so amphibians, yeah. Mostly amphibians. And yep. because the, the Permian period is quite significant for amphibians. Yeah. Um, giant crocodile-shaped frogs. Is yep. that a reasonable kind of... More, more or less. Uh, during the Permian, there was a few groups that were um, probably, I would say... Uh, full-time terrestrial so you know quadrupedal kind of roughly large lizard shaped amphibians uh, going around gobbling things up um they ended up entering into the uh, kind of into the aquatic realm and, and stayed there following the permian so i think we were talking about in the field um a lot of these guys might be considered disaster taxa um it's which disaster might, might, taxa yeah so what what is a disaster taxa so a disaster taxa uh, for, you know, uh, whatever reason, it, whatever characteristic it happens to have, um, is already predisposed to surviving a particular event. So it's more or less a stroke of luck. Um, okay, so, so birds at the end of the Cretaceous having a beak allowed them to crack open seeds, which is a food source that they could get access to that others couldn't. So small animals at the end of the Cretaceous... Yes. Given that circumstance, okay. So it's you just happen to have a thing. There's a there's a catastrophe with a particular set of criteria in that catastrophe, and it wipes out a particular group. You happen to be the group that that survives that. Yeah, is that? Yeah, well, kind of. So there's a, a general rules, if you like, that you'll see when it comes to who survive an extinction, and it's typically things that are generalist. So if you're not too picky about what you eat. That's a good thing. So it's a good thing to teach your kids as well. Don't just eat chicken nuggets and chips, or you might die in an extinction. So, <laughs> does this? Do, what about my vegan friends? What do I tell them? Well, there's a lot of plants out there. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. So, so vegan, you could be okay with that. Okay. Yes, you could be okay with that. So, be a generalist, which means that you'll have you know an abundance of food sources available that might not be suitable for a lot of other animals. Uh, being small is really good. So being small is often related to having short generation cycles, which means that you have a lot of offspring every year, which means that you can quickly replenish populations of animals that have gone extinct. But you also have a high evolutionary rate usually, which means you can more rapidly adapt to the new conditions. And uh, thirdly as well, if you're a burrowing animal, that's a great thing. And in particular, if you're also hibernating in those burrows, you can then sleep through the whole thing. And just wake up and go, where did everyone go? <laughs> Is that like those mm. people in America that have those bunkers? Go into those <laughs> yes, bunkers? Yes, I suppose. Yes, yeah, so like a bug out shelter. And yeah. come out. Which is so, so and, and then over a period of time, once mm. the conditions become more stable, yes. then there can be a, a, a radiation of a whole bunch of... That's right. So, you know, essentially all the ones that were dominating in the time before the extinction because typically they were large and specialized, then disappeared. So now it's open playing field for the survivors to sort of fill all these empty niches in the ecosystem. 
And that's when you get these, what you said, adaptive radiations. You know, there's all these possibilities and you can just go out when it's pretty much competition free in a lot of spaces and, and evolve pretty rapidly into new, new kinds of, of way of life. So, Ashton, the, mm. the amphibians, the, 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 the Permian amphibians, and sometimes it's, it, is it called the age of amphibians? Because they, they, or did I just make that up? Yeah, I made, probably yeah, I was just made that up. I think so. I think you'll I call, think so. probably you'll call uh, Carboniferous the age of amphibians. Yeah. And then uh, the Permian is more, to me anyway, the age of the proto-mammals. Yeah. Ah, well, good, excellent. Anyway, the age of subsequent amphibian thingies um, <laughs> right <laughs> uh, so, so, so what was it about amphibians in, in the Permian what, what, what do we see because like, I, I mentioned that, that, that you know like, something like uh, uh, platy uh, there's a platy thingy ops thing <laughs> <laughs> look I've only had one coffee this morning dear listener and this is why yeah. we record this live most of them ended in ops or spondylus. Yeah. Yes. So, so what what do we see? What the the diversity of them? Um, so, I mean, some of them ended up um, obviously thought to be terrestrially adapted. Um, you ended up some had like little, uh, I technically scoots, Espen, scoot like yeah, armor. Some of them did, yeah. Um, what sort of arms? Like scoot like armor, armor. Oh, armor. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So imagine like a so like an yeah, ar- like like a like a scoots a, on a crocodile, for instance. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Something similar like that. Um, and uh, yeah, generally larger body size and um, thicker bones to support their weight out of water. Yep. So yep. Why, why do they why do they go into the water then? Oh, it. I mean, being amphibians, they probably still needed water to actually reproduce. Um, so obviously, they don't have a hard shell uh, on their egg like um, you know reptiles, birds. Okay. So, so, so these 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 whether in the carboniferous or the or the, or the Permian, these these giant amphibians were laying eggs, tadpoles became yeah, a thing. Yeah, so they go through um, their whole life cycle, like tadpole, um, to all the way through to metamorphosis into an adult. So and that's generally carried. So we say giant. Like, so, so how big? Because I'm just I'm just picturing a tadpole the size of a horse. <laughs> oh, there was a, a fair few decent sized ones. Uh, there was. One that was uh, aquatic that I think was about nine meters long called Prionosuchus. Um, and yeah, so quite a, quite a large amphibian. That's a large, large. So what, what, are, the, what are the biggest amphibians we have now? Oh, uh, probably, yeah, the Asian giant salamanders, yeah. I think. But the interesting as, as well with that, you can tamper with the uh, hormones in the development of tadpoles and prevent them <laughs> from turning into frogs. Yeah. <laughs> so they essentially just grow into a giant tadpole. <laughs> we were having a bit of a chat about this last night. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of interesting things. But also, obviously, uh, modern-day amphibians uh, mm. and where they come from is also a question here because we don't really see those until you get into the Triassic period. We start seeing things that are frog-like and salamander-like and to what is now modern-day list amphibians. But they came probably from this group of, of amphibians that we call ten, these temnus bondiles that had a va- wide variety of, of, of ways of living, some were even marine. Uh, uh, Traumatosaurids looked a bit like gharial crocodilians and were living in the ocean. And, and so what do we find in Queensland in terms of, of these creatures? Oh, we find a huge variety. Anything from tiny little things that are 10 centimetres long to uh, big uh, giant salamander things with 
wide, 40 centimeter wide heads that are quite com flatly compressed and up to probably three, four meters uh, long, these animals. So a big variety. Yep. Mm. Uh, so back to the extinction. Yes. Yeah. Back to the back to that fateful day of days where and, and, and it was Siberia that did it, wasn't it? Yes. S Siberia just yes. like split open basically. Oh yes. There was a lot a large amount of volcanism going on in Siberia at that time. And it's one of those things that you call a large igneous province, they're called. And you see those Whenever there's an extinction, you typically also see how oh, there's a large igneous province and somewhere erupting volcanoes. So a large igneous province. Mm. That that uh, just try and paint us a picture of if we were to like yes. visit a large igneous province. So that's essentially a very uh, volcanically and tectonically active area over a large area, so a regional uh, area. So in terms of Siberia, several hundreds of thousands square kilometers, where there's usually a lot of the volcanoes are slow release, if you like, a bit like the, most of the Hawaiian volcanoes now. So they're so-called shield volcanoes, so they are... Uh, low viscosity lavas, which means that fluids and gases don't get trapped in sticky magma like in a lot of the explosive uh, volcanoes you see in New Zealand, for instance. So they spew out lava and uh, carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide and ash and other things uh, almost continuously over a very long period of time, which is why this extinction dragged out so as long as it did. So, yeah, not that sudden thing where, where the asteroid smashes into the Earth. Right. It's just this, yeah. this slow seepage of massive amounts of, of CO2. Yeah, very bad yeah. stuff for the global warming when it comes to greenhouse gases and uh, sulfur dioxide for acidity in the, in the groundwater, in the uh, rivers, creeks, streams and lakes and in the ocean. Uh, and also global warming and global uh, ocean acidification dissolving carbonate reefs or carbonate mm -hmm. platforms that are formed from corals and other things and then releasing um, even more carbon dioxide or carbon into the atmosphere. So we see over that time span we see a global temperature warming of up to about 8 degrees. So are you saying then that, and you are, that <laughs> if you want to know what happens when you increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, for example... Yeah, without being so blunt. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to know what happens when you do that, the people to talk to are paleontologists because... We've so, seen it. Yes, it's we, right. We've seen it. We know we know what happens when we do that. And with the Permian, we know the cause of it. And we know now that the CO2 levels are increasing. How do we know? Well, for the same reason I know that I'm five foot eight. Mm. You can measure it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And when I was shorter, I could we, we measured me, and then I grew, and you can measure the difference from when I was eight years old and when I was 12 and when I was 20 not so long ago um, and boy <laughs> um, so you can measure those things and what I always find fascinating about the the, the, the conversations you see in the media is like, it's not it's not really hard science is it mm. like you increase the amount of carbon dioxide it does stuff it certainly it does, does stuff it's mm. the properties of carbon dioxide uh, that it's a greenhouse gas 
properties of H2O, that it's water, that's just what they are, that's just what they do. And I think um, there was also always this perception that surely the amount that humanity is putting out can't make a difference. Just like, you know, 50 or 70 years ago, people were, well, we can take all the fish we want from the ocean, there's an endless supply, which, you know, we clearly have established that that's not the case. Yeah, we can take 180 million sharks out of the ocean every year, mm. that's going to work. It's, uh, yeah, mm. and I suppose the other thing too is, is that, 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 that the, the other fascinating thing that people talk about is like, well, it's only a small percentage. It's like, yeah, how much heroin as a percentage of your body weight do you need in your body for an overdose? <laughs> a tiny, tiny percentage, less than the percentage of, of, of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, Ashton, Ashton, so um, what was it that drew you to to the the work that you do, the the PhD work? So just to give us a quick summary of what it is. It's just answering, you know, kind of those big questions as to, you know, what the Earth system is doing over time and how life is adapting to deal with those changes and deal with those changing environments. And and what 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 have you what are you seeing in terms of the capacity of life to adapt, to find a way? Oh, I mean, in the big picture of things, I mean, yeah, I mean, if there's a gap, something will evolve to fill it. Normally, something small, something numerous, <laughs> um, but it normally follows a big extinction uh, when you see this boom of, as we were talking about before, adaptive radiation. So yeah. So so how long after the the Permian extinction smashed everything? Mm. Um. And we, we, you know, we, we, we touched on the life finds away thing. How long did it take the Earth? So, and, 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 and again, we, we ask these questions because of, of what's occurring now. Like here in Australia, we've got the worst mammal extinction rate of any country in the world. Like, that's, that's not okay. That just isn't, whatever, whatever your, your, your system is or have whatever your beliefs are, it's like, that's, that's not a really smart thing to be doing. And, and 180 million fish out of the sea or sharks out mm. of the sea every year and, and stuff. So... Well, it seems uh, the more we learn about this from different localities across the world, there is slight, there are slight differences on how long this took, depending on the environment you might have been in. So you hear numbers anything from a couple of million years to up to 10 million years for a full recovery. And that doesn't mean that there is no life immediately after. That just means that when you're looking at the diversity and complexity of the ecosystems, it takes that long to recover. So even just immediately after in the first, you know, tens of, or thousands of years after the extinction, the uh, so-called pigs of the Permian, the Dysonodons, <laughs> our ancestors, if you like, our relatives. <laughs> I like the pigs of the Permian. Uh, <laughs> they were thriving, you know, after this extinction event. They were, yeah, happy as a pig in mud. And That's the name of my new band. <laughs> <laughs> pigs of the Permian. Live on stage in Townsville. <laughs> so, you know, you see that uh, numerous uh, uh, animals are there, but there's low diversity. So to get that diversity back that was prior to the extinction, it takes a very, very long time. Okay, so um, tell us more about these pigs of the Permian. <laughs> like, as a species, what, 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 what was it about them? They, they yeah. I, 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 so stem mammals evolved... Uh, from, you know, everyone will have heard about Dimetrodon. And Adaphosaurus is essentially the plant-eating variety of Dimetrodon, and they existed at the same time. And in the Permian is when you start seeing the very first large herbivore-predator relationships on land evolving from these so-called stem mammals. 
And so these so-called pelicosaurs, we named that group, the Dimetrodon and the Daphosaurids, evolved eventually into what we call the uh, therapsids, which are things like Dicynodont, which is, looks kind of like a mix between a parrot, a pig and a hippo, <laughs> with, with tusks in some cases. Uh, and these were the herbivores, and then you had things that looked a bit like if you mix a T-Rex with a wolf, that were the were the uh, uh, were the predators of these things. That that just sounds like a big bunch of teeth with yes, a stomach. Yeah, so really, yeah, really quite big-headed, wide-headed, with big canines and 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 quite big teeth as well. Obviously, not that big, but we're talking things that are anything between a couple of meters to three, four, five meters long. So pretty substantial. So this is why I previously called this Permian the age of proto mammals or stem mammals. So previously, they used to call them. A mammal like reptiles, but that's a bit of a confusion because they have no relationship to reptiles whatsoever. Uh, it's a quite—it's not a very complex story, I suppose. What what happened was when animals first evolved into being on land, there were amphibians, and then you had amniotes. And amniotes are the ones that evolved. What Ashton spoke about before—the amniotic eggs that have a hard shell that allows them to be on land without dehydrating and so on. And they split into two groups, one group that evolved in eventually into reptiles and another group that evolved, uh, eventually evolved into these proto-mammals, stem mammals and eventually mammals. So that, but they, those amniotes, all, whether they were mammal uh, ancestors or reptile ancestors, all kind of looked like lizards back then. So they weren't lizards in the term that we think of lizards now, but they kind of have that look to them. So this is why previously, oh, they look a bit reptile-like, we'll call them mammal-like reptiles, but obviously we've gone away from that now. But they're not, mm. not reptiles at all? No. No. Pigs of the Permian. And so I'm just, <laughs> just racing like through yeah. how the stage show is going to work. Ashton. Yep. Your favourite Permian animal I don't know it's got to be one of those pigs I reckon, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I reckon yeah um, and why I, I don't know I think Dimetrodon's pretty cool um, but I spent most of my life mm. thinking that was probably closer to a dinosaur than a mammal as the media continually um, but now you know propagates this myth, my, but, my yeah. former supervisor always used to say that the pelicosaurs which includes dimetrodon are the coolest animals in the permian so so <laughs> yeah. what, what so what, why did your supervisor say that well i think because they kind of look you know they're the first sort of dinosaurish looking things even though they are mammal ancestors and they have you know they have the big teeth they've got the sort of reptile looking body and they've got the big back body sail that we don't really know what it was for so i think that's that's the reason why he said that but obviously there are and it's got a bit of a, a, a rhyme to it in a sense, in Norwegian anyway, but... Do go on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think probably, yeah, uh, from the Permian, one of the coolest animals are one of those pigs of the Permian, a Dysanodont, and it's called Dysanodon, and you would have seen it if you watched, what is it, is it uh, Walking with Monsters, I think, one of those after Walking with Dinosaurs, and it's tiny burrowing tusks, tusk-like little critter. So they're burrowed into the sand in these really dry areas. And they've got these cute little, I don't know, mixed between E.T. and a parrot-looking face. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're pretty cool, yeah. Um, I'm interested in, in, you were talking before about, um, in the Permian, it's the whole predator on land thing. Yes. Because 
when animals start eating other animals, mm. it creates some um, like a an, an arms race. Yeah, doesn't it? Does. it? When, when we look, look when we look at the early Cambrian and you look at things like an Anomalocaris and stuff, yep. all of a sudden animals start eating other animals. So you don't want to be eaten. So you evolve different ways. Yeah, whether it's behaviours or anatomy to try and avoid being being predated, and that can be camouflage, or you can have defensive systems part of your body. Or you can have certain behaviours like rabbits. If you have a rabbit as a house pet, it'll poo in one place, so it doesn't want to scatter its scatter its scent all over the place to attract predators. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> so they're very easy to house train. Right, I don't have a pet rabbit. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that's, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so what survived? into the Triassic and, and get an answer from both of you. Like, like what are some things and, 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 and why? Ashton looks like he wants to say something. Yeah. Oh, I mean... Yeah, come on. Yeah, uh, okay. So, say what I mean, you obviously had, uh, you know, the Temnospondyls. They, they survived and they... So Temnospondyls are... Uh, sorry, the amphibians, um, group of large that, that group, the large ones, yep. Yeah, um, but uh, not, they're not all large. Um, you also had, uh, I think, probably, yeah, three dominant um, kind of head shapes. One was a kind of a if you can imagine like a semicircle or a half a frying pan um for a head um you had the kind of uh very elongated traumatosaurs as well that's, as espen said earlier looked similar to like a gharial um and you also had kind of something halfway between there um that was kind of broad um relatively flat and you know looked a bit more like uh, i guess close to an alligator so what was it about them that are like, because we talked before about small things and or things with beaks. What, what? Yeah, well, um, with those guys, I mean, they are amphibians. So um, from the get-go, they don't need anywhere near as many calories as something that's warm-blooded with a high metabolism. So that probably helped them. Um, I would say probably, uh, a, I mean, being in, uh, being that you, you can, you've got like a. Um, like a life cycle of an amphibian, um, they produce many, many offspring, generally, amphibians. So they're, I mean, in ecology, you call things R-selected or K-selected species. Uh, human beings are considered K-selected, so, you know, we invest a lot of effort into one or two or three offspring, and we live a long time, we have a long generational time, but R-selected species are like... So we don't do that thing that turtles do, where you have a hundred children and then say, off you go, on your own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and our, yeah, our kids can't really fend for themselves. So, um, But yeah, I mean, it's a numbers game if you're an R-selected species and you produce a lot of offspring and you don't have to put much effort into actually raising them. That's a good strategy for surviving an extinction in the first place. Yeah, what else can you tell us? Well, I think as well, uh, and we see that even today with a lot of amphibians, they'll, if, especially in a place like Australia where there's droughts and wet seasons, they'll actually dig down into the sediment and hibernate. So a lot of these things were probably hibernating as well and could essentially survive you know, for years or even decades or longer. You've seen some amphibians doing that these days. Uh, so that could probably have helped them as well. Uh, other things that survived, obviously not everything went extinct. We see reptiles after the extinction event. And we've got a little one here. This is a, a tiny head of a, of a little reptile that was around in Queensland 145 million years ago. So not very long after the extinction at all. So we so know there are reptiles around. For those at home, it's, this is one less than a centimetre, this tiny little skull. 
So how do you yep. how do you find a thing like that? Just oh well, you know, trade secret. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about finding fossils is that you sort of got to decide in advance what sort of fossils do I want to be looking for. And then you decide where to go by looking at geological maps. So luckily for us, the geologists have been out there and mapped the rocks and what they are, what they believe they are anyway, and what sort of environment they represent. So if I want to find a reptile from the early Triassic, I go to where there's lake deposits or river deposits from the early Triassic, and I just, then you just got to go and look and be lucky. But other things that... The thing about extinction is, when you're talking about what survives, is that... It provides us with the opportunity that we are here now. Without the extinctions that have happened, we wouldn't even be here. Same with dinosaurs. If the end permanent extinction had happened and the subsequent late Triassic extinction, there probably wouldn't even have been any dinosaurs for over 150 million years either. Because after this extinction, there was all these stem mammals around, but there were also the ancestors of crocodilians, the pseudosuchians. And they essentially did the dinosaur thing before dinosaurs. You have pseudosuchian or crocodile, crocodile relatives that look like ankylosaurs, which are these armored dinosaurs with a tail club. They're called eatosaurs. They were around. We had bipedal crocodilians that looked a bit like uh, meat-eating dinosaurs that walk on two legs. They were around. And they were dominating much of that habitat or an ecological space until an extinction at the start of the late Triassic around 230 million years ago. And they, most of those went extinct, and the dinosaurs sort of started. And the, that's that's when yeah. dinosaurs are gone. Yep, this yeah. is our this is that's our right. moment. This yeah, is this is our chance. A lot of these things were just dinosaurs were just gangly things in the background. Dinosaurs were just gangly things in the background <laughs> is probably the note on which to end. <laughs> Can we please thank Espen and Ashton? <laughs> thank you, Natural Science Week. Spread some paleo jam